It's Tuesday, September 13th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, we're approaching overpopulation. Or we're in danger of population decline. It depends who you ask. As we prepare to pass 8 billion humans on Earth, a look at the history of population anxiety and thoughts about where we go from here. Plus, a visually appealing compostable alternative to Keurig cups and Nespresso pods. And a vital Muppet-related update. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. On November 15th this year, the United Nations has predicted that the global population will hit 8 billion. 8 billion of us all alive at the same time. And I remember in middle school geography classes when we learned that the population was a mere 6 billion. That felt like so much back then. And now we are about to hit 8 billion. How many will it be in a few decades? Will we keep growing in size as we long have? Or will some catastrophe drastically reduce the population? And what about all these reports of people having less children and population decline in some nations? Should we be striving for more people or less people? BBC Future recently explored all of these questions and more, pointing out first and foremost that these questions are anything but modern. One of the earliest textual examples of fretting over the population of humanity comes from the Atrahasis, an epic poem from ancient Babylon, telling one of the earliest great flood stories that would come to feature in many cultures, most famously for some in the Old Testament. The Atrahasis was written about a thousand years before that. And the Atrahasis, written on tablets rediscovered in the 1980s, is a creation story featuring multiple gods creating humans as worker bees. But after creating humans, the god Enlil gets annoyed by them. Quoting the Atrahasis, 1,200 years had not yet passed when the land extended and the people multiplied. The land was bellowing like a bull. The god got disturbed with their uproar. Enlil heard the noise and addressed the great gods. The noise of mankind has become too much for me. With their noise, I am deprived of sleep. Let there be a pestilence upon mankind. End quote. What follows from the gods was a series of droughts, plagues, and eventually the Great Flood. The important takeaway, though, is the notion of overpopulation being reflected in this ancient text. This despite the population at the time most likely being between 27 and 50 million people, or about 03 to 0.6% of the current global population. And by the way, if you want to learn more about the Atrahasis, I highly recommend the second episode of the Literature and History podcast hosted by Doug Metzger. Link in the show notes. But anyways, we can trace population anxiety at least back to the 18th century BCE with the Atrahasis, and it pops up again throughout history. BBC Future points to Plato's thoughts on population control, particularly following a period of rapid growth in Athens. Quoting the BBC, in Plato's Magnum Opus, The Republic, written around 375 BC, he describes two imaginary city-states, administrative regions governed almost like small countries. One is healthy, and one is luxurious and feverish. In the latter, the population spends and devours excessively, surrendering themselves to consumerism until they have overstepped the limit of their necessities. 
Alas, this morally decrepit city-state eventually resorts to seizing neighboring lands, which naturally spirals into war. It simply can't sustain its large, greedy population without extra resources. Plato had hit upon a debate that's still raging today. Is the human population the issue, or is it the resources it consumes? End quote. Now, there were others over the centuries who wondered at various points whether humanity had reached its limits, whether the Earth would still be able to sustain us if our ranks continued to grow. But the one most of us will be familiar with as it concerns population growth is that of Thomas Malthus. His basic assertion that our population was increasing exponentially as more people reproduced to create more offspring, but our ability to produce food was not increasing commensurately, caused a bit of a debate that has barely cooled off since he first proposed his idea back in 1798, when, it should be noted, the global human population was still just under 1 billion. Malthus's argument led to roughly two camps of people who lined up with Plato's binary. Should we limit the number of humans, or should we try to make more resources? Malthus has been evoked here and there throughout history, when people have needed some citation for their arguments against social welfare programs or to justify persecution, ethnic cleansing, and eugenics programs. Quoting the BBC, As a result of its controversial history, population engineering is a deeply divisive area. Today, any policies involving quotas or targets to increase or decrease the human population are almost universally condemned, except by a handful of extremist organizations. The risk of these incentives leading to coercion or other atrocities is seen as too great. But there is little agreement beyond this." And again, not everyone is worried about overpopulation. Some are worried about population decline. Here in the U.S., the population growth rate has been declining since 2008. In the U.K., according to the BBC, they're below the replacement level of 2.075, that is, the number of births required to maintain the same population size. Now, in the U.K., their population is still growing thanks to immigration. In the U.S., our plummeting immigration rates is part of why our population growth rate is also in a bit of a decline, according to The Atlantic. Among those proponents of increasing population is Jeff Bezos, who has laid out plans for how we can hit a human population of one trillion, all spread out across the solar system. Some of the arguments for keeping population growth rates in the positive is so that you can continue to have younger people who can both take care of older community members, as well as contribute to the workforce and innovate on new technologies and solutions. Quoting again, This is one reason that concerns about the growing population in developing parts of the world is sometimes seen as problematic. Many developed countries are already densely populated, and this is partly how they achieved their wealth. Denying other countries this opportunity is seen as unfair and even racist. However, slower population growth isn't always followed by an economic downfall. Take Japan, which preempted global trends in wealthy nations and achieved below-replacement-level fertility rates as early as 1966, when it suddenly dropped from around 2 to 1.6. 
I don't think it's the case that Japan's economy has declined to the extent that people sometimes portray it if you look at standards of living, says Andrew Mason, emeritus professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Hawaii. They've invested a lot in human capital, so they have fewer children, but they've emphasized education and have very good healthcare systems, end quote. But for those at least somewhat in favor of curbing punitive overpopulation, many focus less on coercive strategies and more on methods like making contraception available and accessible to anyone who wants it and providing more educational opportunities for women and girls and more awareness on sex education and reproduction in general, as well as spreading awareness around personal responsibility and consumption, particularly in wealthy nations. That latter method tends to come from people who fall in that camp of needing to allocate resources better rather than necessarily slow population growth. Some will even point out that consumption has a larger impact than population because in those wealthy nations where consumption is much higher, there are also lower birth rates. And though I can't say how popular it actually is or any impact that it's really having, I do know a seemingly growing number of people in some of those wealthy countries are choosing to limit the number of kids they have or not have children at all due to various concerns around the climate crisis, their individual environmental impact, and the physical world those kids might have to grow up in. The BBC points to the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Harry and Meghan, as one example of a couple who publicly announced they will only have two two kids for this very reason. But zooming back out, Alex Aza, professor of global health at Drexel University, said the concern should be less about how many people are in a given country and more about the rate of growth or decline. Eza said, quote, I think the conversation about size and numbers is a misplaced conversation. Think of a city that is doubling every 10 years, and that's a number of cities in Africa. Which government really has the resources to improve every infrastructure that currently exists every 10 years in order to maintain the correct level of coverage of those services? End quote. Right. Even though Plato thought the ideal city was 5,040 citizens, a city could conceivably function just as well with 5 million, so long as it had time to get accustomed to that. But if it had to drastically go from 5,000 to 5 million in a short period of time, or vice versa, that's where you might start to see some real challenges. And even though population anxiety is an ancient concern, it doesn't seem like exponential population growth will always be our current state. The UN has predicted that we will probably hit 10.4 billion people around 2070 or 2080. And if we do get to that point, we will probably stay stagnant at that number for about two decades. And then eventually after that, sometime after 2100, the population may begin to decline. So much of this debate feels like a back and forth, a push and pull, where we don't really know and so many of the solutions are on such a macro scale. One perspective I appreciate comes from Rhodes College Associate Professor of International Studies, Jennifer Shuba, who told the BBC, quote, One of the things that frustrates me about the overpopulation debate is a lot of comments come out of the same people's mouths, that we don't want there to be too many people, and we also want to make sure the economy is always growing. In a world where there are fewer people, we really need a complete mindset shift away from growth equals progress, end quote. It's worth thinking about. I know especially here in America, telling someone more and bigger doesn't always necessarily mean better is a tough sell, but maybe it's time we start approaching this idea with at least a bit more nuance and creativity. 
What does national or global success look like apart from growth? I know a lot of folks these days love their French presses or their Nespresso machines, but I'm still a big fan of drip coffee in the morning. I've got one of those Mr. Coffees that you can fill with grounds and water the night before, set the alarm, and wake up to the sounds and smell of freshly brewing coffee. It's like living in an early 90s Folgers commercial. And considering I work from home, I need more than just the one serving of coffee that some of those alternatives provide. But if you are a single cup kind of person, I definitely understand the convenience of machines like Keurig's. Just pop in the pod, press a button, and go. A lot of the models even come with big enough reservoirs that you only have to fill them with water every couple of days. The downsides of those machines, of course, is the environmental impact of all of those pods. John Sylvan, the inventor of Keurig's K-Cups, even regrets having invented them. He left the company in 1997 before they became wildly popular, so he hasn't strongly benefited. But apart from the environmental impact, he says he also doesn't get why people pay so much for them. He's a simple drip coffee prepared the night before guy like I am, and he says he designed the K-Cups to be more for offices, or to maybe deter people from hitting up Starbucks and Dunkin' every morning, which, relative to that, a K-Cup might have less of an environmental impact. In any case, both Keurig and Nespresso have released recyclable pods in recent years, but Swiss retailer Migros is hoping to do one better. They have created spherical capsules that they call coffee balls, which are fully compostable. The coffee balls are encased in a flavorless seaweed-based cover that looks appealingly lustrous, almost like swirling brown gas planets, and they can be discarded with the used coffee after each use. The coffee balls, like Keurig and Nespresso, would come with a dedicated coffee maker called the Coffee Bee System, so you'd have to get the whole thing. The system and coffee balls will roll out in Switzerland and France this year, followed by Germany next year. And if they take off, maybe they or a version made by a competitor will hit the market in the US and other countries soon after. And you know, I will say, back when I had a Keurig, we had a reusable receptacle that we just filled with ground coffee each morning and then would dump the grounds into the compost, give the receptacle a little bit of a rinse. I guess that does defeat some of the convenience of having a Keurig, but it is an option if you really want a Keurig but don't like how much waste you're creating with K-Cups, even the recyclable variety. At least until coffee balls come to your area. I am well aware that we are but days removed from Labor Day, but I have a very important Christmas-related announcement for you. There is a new version of the Muppet Christmas Carol being released this December on Disney+. Plus. Well, I say new, but it's actually the version that I, and probably many of you listening, grew up with. This restored edition will now include the song When Love Is Gone, which was cut last minute from the theatrical release of the film back in 1992. The song comes at the end of Scrooge's visit with the ghost of Christmas past, when he and the woman that he loved, Belle, are essentially breaking up. 
It's a completely heartbreaking ballad that admittedly does kind of slow the pacing and brings some deeper emotions to the Muppet movie, but it also sets up the resolution for the final song in the movie, When Love Is Found. The song was apparently cut when executives noticed that kids in test screenings got distracted and fidgety during the more emotionally adult scene, which actually does track with my experience. Despite being cut from the theatrical release, the song was included on the home video and TV airings, so I remembered the scene from my childhood and was initially confused when I bought a DVD version of the movie as an adult and the scene was missing. I thought for a while that I had just made it up. But despite getting super emotional while re-watching the scene on YouTube for the first time as an adult, I do remember literally fast-forwarding through the song as a kid because it was just so unbearably boring. Perhaps knowing how much of the audience for this 30th anniversary edition of the movie will be grown-ups reconnecting with a movie of their youth and perhaps not actual children, Disney has decided to put the song back in the movie when it lands on Disney Plus this December. So there is your extremely niche behind-the-scenes Muppet Christmas fact for the day. And so that will be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.